Well, if you're new, welcome. My name is Steve. We have, uh, we've been in a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're in the last two chapters. I pray this book has been instructive for you. Uh, I pray it's been challenging and an encouragement to you. We are, we've got the landing gear down, as it were. We've got this week, uh, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? If you don't, uh, there should be one in the pew rack right in front of you or right next to you somewhere. Go ahead and grab it. We're on about page 523, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes 11. Let me tell you uh, where we were last week. Last week we were looking at uncertainty. Uh, toward the end of this book, we've really been dealing with two big uh, theological ideas. One uh, is the certainty that Solomon has been very clear throughout this book to tell us that we all will die. Whether we try to avoid it or ignore it, the fact is plain in Ecclesiastes that Solomon works through all of his philosophical reasonings and wanderings and ambitions and considerations with life under the sun, recognizing the fact that death comes to us all. All of us in a hundred years will no longer be here, we all, uh, no matter who you are, whether you try to ignore it or put it out of your mind, live with the reality that one day our EKG will stop, the brain waves will stop, and we will die. And then last week, uh, Solomon has been building in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 this reality that life is just uncertain. Between the certainty of death and tomorrow is the reality that we don't know what tomorrow holds. Amen? We don't know how Monday is going to go for us. That all of us this week had things happen that we did not expect and did not plan for. Amen? Things came into our, we had a broken wrist in our house this week that we did not expect and we did not plan for. That there are life moments that happen that disrupt the uh, planning and ambition that we have to make life work on our terms. That we're constantly interrupted by variabilities and uncertainties and irrationalities in life. And Solomon said that last week. He said, there are times when leaders make bad decisions and exalt people they shouldn't. There are times that in your line of work and in your vocation, things can go sideways on you. And things don't work the way you want them to. That there are times when you say the wrong things and you come across as a fool. And there are times when you do pretty good and you hold your tongue and recognize I was pretty wise in that moment. But in that uncertainty of life, all of those things were out here. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is going to take you from out here to in here. If you were to talk to me about my spiritual life between about age 15 and about 30, I would tell you that my spiritual life was characterized by fear and control. Now, I would call it seeking wisdom. I would call it trying to get counsel. But if you were to peel back the layers of what was happening in my spiritual life, there was a series of events in my life between 15 and about 25 where uh, life was continuously uncertain, continuously variable. It was like every 18 months in my life there was a change. And what it began to create in my heart was a tendency toward control. That it was a tendency toward trying to make sure that the decisions I were making, I were, I were making, I got, that's what I said. Thank you, English teachers. See, we got, we got a couple English teachers that will keep me on point. The decisions that I was making 
whether right or left decisions. They weren't morality decisions, but they were decisions about uh, a job, about a place to live. Right and left decisions where I was like that. Uh, have you ever seen Ice Age? Remember Ice Age? There's an, there's an animal in that movie called Scrat, and Scrat is looking for the acorn. And he's like this wild-eyed squirrel thing. And he's super nervous. That's how my heart was. That I was always nervous about whether or not if I went left, was God going to be there? Or did God go right? And he, and he tricked me. So my spiritual life was constantly in upheaval, constantly in self-reflection, constantly uncertain. And what I needed in that moment, you come across texts in your Bible that help to interpret what's happening in your life at a certain time, Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is that for me. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 helps to explain the counsel that I needed in that moment. Solomon is going to give you one big thing about God and a whole bunch of different things about yourself. And he's going to talk about that tension between uncertainty and sovereignty. Because that's where we live, don't we? We live between these two significant realities that God is sovereign and providential over all of his creation, that he upholds the world, the universe, by the word of his power, and balanced with the fact that I don't know what 230 is going to bring. So how am I to live? What am I supposed to do? What should my perspective be? If at the end of the day, at the end of our hour together, you're going to walk out those doors and have no idea what life is going to throw into you, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? And that's what Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is about. You all right? So let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word that gives light to our eyes, that illumines our paths. Father, we need you. We come as limited, as human as uncertain, as people with uh, understanding that is so often shallow with all of, in relation to all the things that are happening in our lives. So I pray for these few minutes that you would weave into our hearts courage and strength and faith and steadfastness that comes alone by your spirit and your word. Would we see things about you this morning that perhaps we'd never considered before? And would we leave this place more confident of your grace, more confident of your goodness to us in Jesus Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Y'all there? Both of you were there. Say amen if you're there. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters. Now, from the most wise person who's ever lived, somebody throwing a loaf of bread in a lake seems weird. It just seems odd. If you're a fisherman, this seems like weird counsel. What in the world does it mean for you to cast your bread upon the waters? Now, let's just, let's just break it down word by word as to what's happening in this text. Cast might better be translated as the word send. Uh, God, in Genesis chapter 3, did this word, cast or sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. He expelled them from the garden. They were no longer allowed into the presence of God, and he barred the way back into the garden with the cherubim and the flaming sword that prevented their re-entry. So Solomon begins with this command. There's lots, uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, there's lots of active verbs. 
Virtually the entire few verses we're going to look at are all characterized by things you ought to do. And he begins here with saying, cast your bread. Now, what is bread? Bread is a staple in any ancient Near Eastern culture, in any agricultural situation. The creation of bread comes from grain that comes from seed, right? That's a typical understanding of the staple that allows a people to have what they need to live. Now, the third piece Cast your bread upon the waters. Here's what commentators think Solomon is talking about here. Solomon was involved at the height of Israel's wealth and uh, renown in the ancient Near East. Solomon was incredibly wealthy, incredibly well off. He was incredibly renowned for his reputation as having wisdom, as being one of the premier kings of the East. And what that creates with an incredibly successful king, if you knew anything about Solomon's life, is consistent trade and commerce with the surrounding nations. If you read through the book of 1 Kings, you'll come across a guy named Hiram, king of Tyre. Hiram would send wood from Lebanon down to David and to Solomon that provided what David and Solomon would need to build the temple. That Solomon would engage in trade from Egypt and would bring horses in from Egypt into his land. So if you know where Israel is, Israel sits between Egypt, a world power, and the Assyrians up in the northeast. So that through Israel would flow all sorts of trade. Not only that, Solomon and the nation of Israel is on the Mediterranean coast. So that they would have access now to maritime trade. So Solomon in his kingdom was incredibly wealthy because of the economic and commodity trade that would happen in his land. So here's what commentators are observing about Solomon giving this counsel. On the heels of chapter 10 where he recognizes that leaders can make bad decisions. On the heels of chapter 10 where he says, there are risks in your line of work. Be careful how you speak to those rulers who are over in authority, he begins chapter 11 saying, make an investment. And he begins by saying, engage in trade. Send your bread out on the waters. In 1 Kings chapter 10, it says that Solomon would send out his ships with this guy Hiram king of Tyre, and they would go on a circuit, and they would return with all sorts of gold and silver and apes and peacocks and animals and all sorts of stuff, that that was a part of Solomon's world, engaging in trade on the waters. But here's that next half of the verse. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after how long? Many days. Solomon is counseling you in the world of investments. He's counseling you in the world of engaging in business and in trade. But one of the things he recognizes as you cast your bread upon the waters, you put stuff on your ship that now is going to go to a foreign land and that will eventually come back to you is that you've got to play the waiting game. You who are uh, engaging right now in investing in yourself by getting a degree that you hope to use one day are doing Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 1. 
You are putting time and effort and money and focus and you're denying yourself some things that other folks in your world and in your friend groups uh, are experiencing right now for the sake of a payoff when? Later. So Solomon recognizes when you are making investments, how, how long do you want to experience risk? I like experiencing risk about as long as it takes me to reheat my coffee. That's about how risky I like to be. But Solomon says, you want the reward? You are going to have to invest and you're not going to get that return for a long time. Anybody who works in the financial world, anybody who works in retirement would know that you don't engage in giving $100 and getting 1000 over the course of an eight-hour day. If you are, come talk to me and let's talk about how tithes work. Right? We all, listen, we all recognize this reality that we want investment to come back to us how quick? Real quick. I want to put a little bit of risk out to get the maximum amount of reward. And Solomon says life doesn't work like that. But you're still called to, what's the first word of Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1? Cast, send, invest, let it go. You're going to have to live your life taking steps of faith that may not show up into ultimate fruit immediately. You believe that? You guys who've been walking with God for a long time, have there been some prayers that you prayed that took five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Oh yeah. That's a part of life. That's a part of sowing. Now, Solomon is going to, is consistently through this book giving you a perspective on life that is wise. So the first perspective he gives you in verse one is that you're gonna have to give to get. You're gonna have to sow to reap. You're gonna have to invest and take a risk to get the reward. Now let's look at wisdom though. Look at verse two. Give a portion to seven or even eight. Well, what does that mean? Now, in context, we're talking about making investments. We're dealing with commodities and trade and being in the business world. And verse 2, many commentators think that it has to do with the diversification of assets. Do you have all of your retirement in Bitcoin? No? People are like, what's retirement? (laughs) I've been there. I know what that's like. I don't have any coin. I don't care what kind of it. What's Solomon saying? Is Solomon going to put all of his goods into one ship that's headed for Egypt? No. He's going to put his goods across seven or eight different ships. Why? Because more than likely, we're going to get some of those ships there, and we're going to be able to make a profit. We're going to be able to have those things come back. Look at the rest of the verse. For you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. How are you supposed to engage in business and trade? You're supposed to engage in it wisely. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. I don't, know, I don't know what that means, why you need all the eggs in one basket, but I presume it means diversify. Get lots of baskets to put lots of eggs in. So Solomon recognizes. Now, do you see what he introduces here? He not only introduces a risk or a, an active approach to life, But he acknowledges the reality of what he's already been saying in this book. Life happens. People who break through a wall get bitten by a snake. People who quarry stones get hurt by them. 
that life can happen, disasters can happen. So approach your business life, approach your perspective on trade and commerce and the business world in your ambition and in your future with wisdom. You don't know what's going to happen, but that's no excuse for you to fold your arms It's no excuse in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 for you to approach life with your hands in your pockets and go, well, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, it could be a disaster. Solomon acknowledges that we all are going to engage life and engage uh, life actively acknowledging the risks. But he says take calculated risks. Be wise in the way you take risks. You with me so far? So he recognizes right at the outset, your ignorance is no excuse for inaction. Be aware, cast your, cast your bread, send it out, engage in what's going on, but do it wisely because you don't know if there's disaster can happen on the earth. So there are some things that you don't know. He's going to say there are four different times in this passage, he's going to say there are things you don't know about life. Is that frustrating? That there are some things right now that you don't know about life? You don't know how they're going to go. You don't know how they're going to work out. But Solomon's counsel to you is not do nothing. He says do something. Engage. Move. Get moving. Get going. Now, he's going to balance this with some things you do know. And Solomon's going to come back to a nature illustration. He's going to give you two visible um, illustrations from nature to illustrate some things that you and I do know. We don't know when disaster is going to strike. We don't know when things are going to go bad. We don't know when we're going to hit a rough patch in our life. But there are some things that we do know. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Don't you love how Solomon, the wisest person in the world, says stuff that like a five-year-old could tell you? Why does he do this? You remember when Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he says, when the sky is red, you know the storm is coming. You can interpret the storms, but you can't interpret the times, meaning you don't understand who I am if I'm standing right in front of you. You can interpret the weather, but you can't interpret the truth that is right in front of your face. Here's what Solomon is saying here. That when you go outside, remember the storms that came through three days ago? And the lightning that woke us up at two o'clock? Remember all of that that came through? When you see the dark storms on the horizon, when you see the dark clouds, it's inevitable in your mind, you know it is going to rain. So why is Solomon telling you that? He's telling you that there are certain things in life that happen that are inevitable. There are realities woven into creation that we take for granted That we see clouds that are full and dark and we know for certain that they are going to rain on the earth. Just like it, you have inevitabilities in life. He's going to talk about inevitabilities in chapter 12 about how we get old and the ways we get old. There are certain things about life that are, you can count on that are inevitable. You and I, track with me here, have no control over whether or not it rains. Right? No control. What are we doing? We just experience the inevitability of the water cycle. Solomon says we know that. Now look at the second part. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. 
Mm, that's good. Get that tattoo. That's powerful. It's like a horoscope. What, well, what is he talking about here? He's not talking about inevitability. He's talking about the randomness of life. Remember what he said in chapter 9? That time and chance happen to them all. Whether rich or poor or wise or foolish, that we all experience life. And, it, and in a sense, to many of us, it is just random. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why there's traffic. I don't know why they're late. I don't know what was going on in that situation. I don't know how that conversation went. I have no idea. Life feels so random. And the illustration he gives you is trees falling down. Go outside before hurricane season and wrap a ribbon around the trees that you know for sure are going to fall and what direction they're going to fall in. Do you have that knowledge? No. That's his point, that life and nature, in a sense, are random. That you and I experience not only the inevitabilities of life, but we also experience the randomness of life. There are things that happen that we have no control over and we have no influence over that just happen. So in light of those realities, life being both inevitable and random, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to those things that you know for certain? We have to say these out loud because we get so lulled to sleep and convinced of the fact that we have more control over our circumstances than we do, don't we? Do you have control over the wind? Nope. Do you have control over the rain? Nope. Do you know where the trees are going to fall? Nope. It's Solomon's way of embarrassing you. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If you spend all your time focusing on inevitable and random things, you will never do anything. In the context, what are the behaviors that this individual ought to be doing? Number one is sowing. Number two is reaping. This individual ought to be engaging in the normative responsibilities of putting food on the table for his family. This individual ought to be engaged in the consistent sowing and reaping that provides, verse 1, the bread to eat. But if this individual spends all of their time trying to watch the weather and watch the trees, they're never going to eat. If you are always and perpetually waiting for the right time, it's like you trying to gauge the wind and the clouds and the trees. And Solomon recognizes you won't do the things you ought to be doing. See, this, was, this is so instructive for me that we need to recognize as Christians that a lot of our life comes down to trying to control things that we ought not to control. And then we get incredibly discouraged because the unspoken reality in our mind and heart is that I ought to have been wiser to control the clouds. I ought to have been more insightful. Therefore, this random thing wouldn't have happened to me. I ought to have prayed more and therefore had control over weather patterns. Do you see how foolish that sounds? Think about the scenarios in your life that are both inevitable and random and consider how you're responding to them. 
Are you responding to them by being faithful in the things that God has called you to? Or are you really trying to be faithful for the sake of control over random and inevitable things? This is what Solomon is trying to expose in us, isn't he? He's trying to dig out these unspoken assumptions that we have in the ways that we approach life. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If you're spending all your time waiting on the perfect moment, you're never going to do the things you ought to do. So Solomon begins by saying, if you want reward, you're going to have to risk. You're going to have to take calculated and wise risks to engage in trade to be able to get profit. And that comes in the context of ignorance, because you don't know what's going to happen. Solomon expects your life with God to be one of active, proactive, engaged pursuit of life. Now, verse 3 and 4, are you ever going to have complete knowledge? Nope. That doesn't mean that you get to ignore your responsibilities. I'm waiting until the right time. No, you need to sow today because you're not going to get bread later unless you sow today. I'm going to wait till tomorrow. Then you're one day late. Solomon expects us to engage the uncertainty of life, to engage the fact that we are ignorant and that we are unaware of certain things in life where we have limited knowledge, that we are meant to engage those with proactive action. You with me so far? Look at verse five. We got from what we know. You don't know, disaster. You do know, trees fall and clouds rain. Let me show you something else you don't know if you haven't been humbled and exposed in this text thus far. Look at verse 5. As you don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And you thought you knew how babies were made. Do you see what Solomon did? Biblically, God takes responsibility, according to Psalm 139, for knitting us together in our mother's womb. Right? And this is something with biblical revelation that science cannot give you. Science only deals with the what, not the how. But it deals with the how, not the what. The, uh, the what, not the why. That God takes responsibility here and in Psalm 139 and in Job chapter 10 to talk about his intimate uh, dealings with things like embryos. To where he recognizes, Solomon, in this passage, that we may understand the what, that the cells and the meiosis and the growth and the development of the fetus and the embryo, but you don't understand how a man and a woman can make a soul. Do you? We don't know how that works. You can't get that on the sonogram. And because God brings you to the level of joining material and immaterial, of physical and spiritual, he invites you to understand that you are profoundly, and I am profoundly ignorant of some things that God does in the world. Would you agree with me on that? 
If you could understand what God was doing in the world, you would be God. But thank the Lord that you are not God and that I am not God and that God is God and that God is the one who knows how to run the universe. Amen? So he invites us to consider all the way down in the smallest and most unknown place where he is weaving people together cell by cell and creating a soul and a spirit that will last into eternity that you don't understand that. You don't understand how that works. You don't understand how God does that. And because you don't understand that, we're going to move out and understand that God also controls everything. He controls everything down to the cellular and everything to the universal. And you don't understand what God is doing. Now, in context, how ought I to approach life like that? If we confess that God is completely sovereign over all of his creation, what we're saying, even in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, is that God is not only transcendent, but he's imminent. He's not only high and exalted, but he is near all the way down to knitting babies together in their mother's womb. That he takes responsibility at every level of creation, from the cellular to the solar. You with me? Now, why, does, why is Solomon doing this? Because we live our lives with massive and profound ignorance, with complete, with so much limitations because we're human. We don't know what's in the hearts of people. We don't know what's happening in our culture. We don't understand the last six months of what God was doing in our lives. It's hard for us to figure out what he's doing in our relationships or in our job or in our education or in our future or in our plans or in our ambitions. We don't understand a lot of that. But there's no excuse in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 for us to pull the emergency brake. Rather, Solomon says, hit the accelerator pedal. Go forward. Keep moving. <clears throat> now, you and I are limited. We're limited in what we know. We're limited in our abilities. We're limited in our perspective. We're limited in our understanding. We're limited. We're human. We're dependent individuals in light of God's providence and God's sovereignty and his plans in our lives. So here's what he's done. He keeps knocking down these kind of excuses that show up for us, for our refusal to step forward in life. For my refusal when I was in my 20s to live with a kind of forward tilt in my life. I always had my heels dug in. I was always uncertain. And what I demanded in a lot of my prayers was omniscience from God. God, if you would give me omniscience, I'd be able to go forward. What do you think God answered that with? No God, if you would give me more knowledge, I'd be able to go forward. Nope. God, if you would give me more security about how this is going to work out for my best, oh, uh, in your glory, uh, if you would give me some certainty about my future, I'd be able to trust you. Yeah, nope. So Solomon recognizes, listen, in this life under the sun, Solomon doesn't excuse uncertainty and ignorance and limited knowledge and say, ah, well, just kind of put your hands in your pockets and try to make it through to the end of life. This is so countercultural. Solomon shifts it and he goes, move, get going, make a choice, hit the hole, make the call. God is sovereign. Look at verse 6. 
What about certainty? What about some security about our future? Wouldn't you like that? I'd like control. I'd like complete knowledge. I'd like security. I'd like comfort. I'd like everything to work out on my plan and on my timing. What do I want? I want to be God. I basically simply want to be God. I'd like to be in charge. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. Well, what's he saying here? Sow in the morning, sow at night. Interview for both jobs. Seek out both opportunities. See which one's going to pan out. Sow in the morning, sow in the evening. Withhold not your hand, for you don't know. There it is again, fourth time. See that? You don't know about disaster. You don't know about bones in the womb. You don't know about God who makes everything. And number four, you don't know which will prosper. See, we'd like certainty and control over disaster, and I'd also like certainty and control over prosperity, wouldn't you? I'd like to avoid the disaster, a little more prosperity. I mean, I'll take one little bit of just, you know, disaster just to keep me humble, but mostly prosperity. And Solomon says, you don't know. You don't know whether it's going to pan out. You don't know if that investment's going to hit. You don't know if that opportunity's going to come through for you. But that is no excuse for you to stop working. That's no excuse for you to explain away your life and your refusal to obey because God is sovereign. You don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You remember um, Jesus in Mark 4, he talks about the farmer sowing his seed. And in Mark 4, 4, he talks about this farmer, and he said, the farmer sows his seed and goes to bed, and the seed sprouts, he knows not how. Why does Solomon use these agricultural metaphors for us? Because we, when we engage in work, especially in the word of, world of agriculture, we do this, we plant little bitty boxes on the back of our porch and we put in uh, seeds. And the most fun thing is to see seeds come up quick. But not all of our seeds come up quick. There's massive amounts of waiting and watering and sunshine and just... It's not up yet. Right? Because Solomon is giving you this kind of perspective on life. A lot of times you're going to have to sow and you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to plant and you're going to have to water. And you're going to have to wait. Because you don't have... Paul uses a similar analogy in 1 Corinthians 1 when all of the the church is dealing with um, these factions in the church about leadership. And Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. We were faithful, but we can't take responsibility for the fruit. We did the thing that we were supposed to do, but we can't take responsibility for what God is doing in the lives of people in the church. It's God who causes the growth in the lives of people. So Solomon gives you this perspective on life that you ought to be sowing, you ought to be watering, you ought to be engaged, you ought to be doing the things that you ought to do in the morning and in the evening and every hour in between, but you can't take responsibility for the fruit, you can't take responsibility for the produce, you can't take responsibility for the prosperity, you can't take responsibility for the disaster. All of that lies in the hands and in the mind of God. Now, up to this point, if you're honest and frankly, 
if I'm honest, this kind of life is frustrating to me. Are you with me? That I want more control over my life. I want more certainty and security in my life. I want more confidence that when I put in two and two and two, I get six, maybe seven. I want there to be a return on investment. I want very little risk in my life. I'd rather be comfortable and successful than risky and dependent. I don't like the fact a lot of times that God runs the universe. I'd like him to check with me first. I'd like my life to go differently than God thinks is wisely and sovereignly and providentially best for me. So how is it that we are supposed to live like this? How in the world, do you, did you see what God, we've given, you've, uh, Solomon has given you one thing about God. What's the one thing he's told you about God? God makes and is sovereign over everything. Therefore, live your life. Therefore, head out the doors, work hard, trust that God's in control, and keep moving. Now, I want to, as we consider these things, look with me. This is the weirdest verse to me. I don't really understand why this is there. But I really want this to be true of me. I really want this to be true of you in our church. I really want this to characterize us as the people of God who trust God's wise and sovereign and providential plan. Look at verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What is the sun responsible for in the sowing and the reaping? It's the responsible for growing, isn't it? What kind of person, I don't know if you're a morning person, who's a morning person? Who's a nighttime person? We got more nighttime people. We got two arms over here. We got nighttime people and we got morning people. Now, if you're a nighttime person, you don't want to quote verse 7. I get it. But what kind of person approaches the day like this? Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. It's the same kind of person who says, this is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. See, there's two big temptations that we encounter in a passage like this. One has to do with how we see God. Because frankly, if we are honest with ourselves, and we can be honest here, right? It's church. It's a time to be honest. We can talk about this, that a lot of times the way we view God affects our emotional well-being. That if we're honest, a God who is sovereign and providential over our lives feels like we are out of control and we deal with an internal conversation with God. That Look, I've done this too, where I, ha I go, God, what are you doing, exclamation point. You ever have that conversation with God? God, what are you doing? 
translated, put that into Google Translate, and you get, God, I don't agree with how you are running the universe. And I have had to learn over two plus decades of walking with God that when I encounter the variability and irrationality and uncertainty and the fact that I get confronted with my limited knowledge in life, that I have to take that question and put a question mark on it. And I have to take a step back and ask a more deliberate question in my relationship with God. God, what are you doing? God, what in this moment, in this season, that you are exposing in me with this set of circumstances, what is being revealed in me about my default beliefs about you and about myself? About the things that if I wasn't confronted with my inability and uncertainty and your sovereign wise plan over all of your creation, I wouldn't have to deal with my bitterness toward you. I wouldn't have to deal with the fact that I hate that I am limited. That what I really want, God, out of our relationship is omniscience. And you should tell me what's going on. Now, that's a way that we look at God's sovereignty. What about the ways we look at ourselves? Because when I encounter the variability of life, a lot of times I look to myself and I think that I am in control or should be in control over inevitable and random things. And I begin to examine my own assumptions about myself that I really, if I'm honest, have a higher view of myself than I ought to have. That when I'm confronted with the uncertainty in life, I begin to rub up against and bump into this fact that really I am terrified of the fact that I am dependent on somebody other than myself to run the universe. And what that creates in me and exposes in me, both of those realities expose a couple of different things. It exposes a massive amount of fear that lives in our hearts. A massive inflated view of ourselves that when we encounter the unreasonable and things that don't make sense and disasters or prosperities or all of that, we discover in ourselves this desire toward control that really is a response to the fear that is in our heart. It is totally valid in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 for Solomon to say, go, cast, sow, reap, because God is sovereign over anything. But for the New Testament Christian, it is way better than that. It is a totally valid command for Solomon to say, God is sovereign over everything, so go. God is sovereign over everything. Be responsible. Be wise. Take your shot. Invest. Reap. Sow. Engage. Be a part. Be active. But what gets exposed in my heart, because honestly, listen, a lot of us when we deal with God's sovereignty, we recognize we aren't and that makes us scared. We recognize we're limited and that makes us scared. But when we step into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul deals with the variability of life by answering it with the certainty of the love of God in Jesus Christ. See, it's only the certainty of the love of God that allows me to have true and authentic Christian faith-filled courage. Otherwise, I'm looking to myself to kind of muster up the courage I ought to have because God is sovereign. I better get going. I better be in charge. I better accomplish something. 
But if I move into the New Testament and I begin to see that God is not only transcendent, but he's imminent. God is not only in control, but he has inhabited a body. That he has come and drawn near to us and to show us the fact that Jesus Christ is full of grace and full of truth. That in Christ I now am certain of God's love for me. Listen to me. So that any variability in my life is always washed through the love of God and Jesus Christ for me. You with me? So that now as I go through life, I can agree with what Paul tells Timothy that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. How do you get that? How are you steadfast under trial? Jesus loves me. How do you wash the uncertainty out of your life and the skepticism in your heart toward God out of your life and uh, replace it with the love of God? You look to Christ. You look to the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. You look to the one who went to the cross for you so that you would never have to doubt God's love for you. You remember Romans chapter 5. That says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrates his own love for us in that way. So now, when I hit the door and I step out, my house faces uh, west, so I see the sunset. So I got to go on my back porch to watch dawn. I'm a morning person. I have to get up early before the kids. And I step on the back porch, and I can greet the day like this. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because Jesus loves me. So I can be faith-filled. Listen, church, do you believe? Think with me just through your Old Testament for a second before we start headed toward communion here. God told Abraham, go from your land and your kindred to the land that I will show you. Right? What did he tell him? G-O. The word is go. Remember Moses? He goes to Moses. Moses has been on the back side of the desert for 80 years. Moses has murdered a guy and God tells him to go to Pharaoh. Tell him, time to set my people free. God shows up with Gideon and he talks to Gideon and he tells Gideon, Gideon, go in this your might. I have sent you. When Peter talks to Jesus and they're on the, ocean, on the Sea of Galilee, Peter talks to Christ in the midst of a storm. He says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. He's not testing Christ. He's saying, God, I want to go. I want to be where you are. I want to be a part of what you're doing. When Jesus ascends into heaven in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of who? All nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, church, we are going to be called into things that don't make sense. That is the life of the Christian. We live between uncertainty and limited knowledge and total sovereignty and providence. And that life for you is faith. That's why we go forward. Amen? That's why we move. That's why we can have confidence that God goes ahead of us, behind us, around us. That God is in charge and control over everything. Our love is certain because of what Christ has done. Therefore, we are free. 
And we can live in light of the freedom of Christ going, I don't know what tomorrow comes, but Jesus loves me. It's going to be okay. We're going to keep moving. I don't need to be in charge. Jesus is in charge. I can keep moving. So it begins to uproot this fear and control that's in our heart, and it moves us from being frozen with life's uncertainty to being free and filled with the Spirit. You with me? Now, let's close here. Look at Romans 8. This is a great text to close with. I'm going to call Jared and the band as we prepare our hearts here for communion. So like I said, in the New Testament, Paul roots uh, or he, um, he encounters the variability of life with the certain and sure love of Christ for us, right? Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, amen, neither the end or the beginning, neither angels nor rulers, no spiritual force in all creation stands in the way, no level of demonic and spiritual warfare that you might be experiencing right now to tempt you to disbelieve the promises of God can stand in the way. Nor things present, nor things to come. The things today or the things on Thursday or the things in six months from now cannot stand in the way of this truth. Nor height, nor depth. You know what that means? It means things that are too high or too deep for you to understand. Your limited understanding won't remove this truth. Nor anything else in all creation. No storm, no tree, no wind, no cloud, no sowing, no reaping, no casting your bread upon the waters and having to wait for what God is doing in that situation. Not even in that moment of uncertainty will it compromise this truth. Will it be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Amen? Nothing stops it. So that we can be totally and finally, confidently, courageously free. Father, We need this truth. For those in this room who wrestle and struggle with uncertainty, who wrestle and struggle with God, what are you doing in this scenario in my life? Would you this morning give them great confidence to know that you are in control? To give them great confidence that you love them, that you have demonstrated that to us because of what Jesus has done on the cross? And Father, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate that fact that we are welcomed into the family of God, that all those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Father, we pray and we submit our limited knowledge, our uncertainty about the future, our uncertainty about whether this or that awaits us, May we act upon our responsibilities, trusting fully and finally that we are loved in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.